I'm going to ask for a show of hands here briefly. This isn't something embarrassing, but how many of you are familiar with, or I'll be more specific, how many of you have ever watched uh, the show, The Great British Baking Show? Okay, you don't have to be ashamed. It's a, it's a, it's a good show. Okay, thanks. All right, good. That's all right. Um, there are a number of different challenges in this show that competitors face. One of the reasons I like that show is because it's, it's a lot more low-key than similar shows that are produced in North America and even in Brazil, which try to make everything so tense and overproduced. In this show, different amateur bakers are competing to be the greatest baker, okay? And uh, a number of challenges are, are given them that they have to be able to face and deal with. Sometimes, for example, they are told the ingredients of something they're supposed to bake, but they're not told the amounts. And at other times, they're told the, the amounts of the ingredients, but they're not given instructions. They're not given instructions as to when or how they're to mix the certain ingredients, whether they're to bake it, for how long, whether they're to fry it, whatever it may be. They're not giving all the information that they need. Now, I've spoken several times uh, in sermons recently about brownies and recipes. And uh, from time to time, people ask me to share a brownie recipe with them, which I'm happy to do when I remember. Um, but when I do share it, I make a point to list not only the ingredients, but also to give instructions for how those ingredients are to be mixed, how and at what temperature they're to be baked. Now, through the first seven chapters of Acts, we've consistently seen the theme of witness emphasized again and again. It's the primary calling of the church to make disciples. It's our responsibility. It's the heartbeat of God. It's the reason for which Jesus commissioned the disciples in, in, in Matthew 28. And yet... Although we know that witness is the responsibility of the church, we may be a little vague and fuzzy on the details, the instructions, if you want to put it that way, of witness. What the ingredients are, who is responsible, and how it should be carried out. In just five short verses in chapter 8, Luke gives us an overview of witness, specifically revealing the following points. Ready? Who is responsible for witness? And then the location of witness. Where is witness supposed to take place? Thirdly, the method of witness. Fourthly, the content of witness. And finally, lastly, the priority of witness. I'm going to be reading those verses from Acts chapter 8. We're starting with verse 4 and reading through verse 8. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, 
and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The first question, the first ingredient, if you want to put it that way, of witness is the question, who? Who is responsible for witness? Now, let me briefly remind you of our context here. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, has been killed. Just recently, that same day, the day of his murder, a great persecution breaks out against the early church, right? Scattering its members out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. So in this text here in chapter 8, Luke chooses one of those people who is scattered and he follows him. That's Philip. He follows him. And what we begin to see now is the second generation of missionaries. The first generation would have been the apostles. And now that baton is being passed on to others. And in this context, and in the following one as well, we're going to see how witness is being done by and through Philip. As the believers flee persecution and scatter, Luke lets us know which of them are responsible for being witnesses of the resurrection and witnesses for Jesus Christ. Are you ready for it? It's a complicated concept. Who is responsible for witness? Which believers are responsible for witness? Which children of God are responsible for witness? Here's the answer. All of them. That means all of us. What does the text read in verse 4? Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered. So if they were going, they were preaching. It did not say that those who had theological training preached the word wherever they went. Or those who were apostles. Or those who knew Greek. Or those who were older and more mature. It says those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. It's easy to think that others would do a better job than you will of witnessing or of sharing Christ with others. There have been several times where I've had people call me and say, listen, I've been talking to this friend at work and I want to talk to him about Jesus, but I think you would do a better job. So can I set up a phone call with you or um, can we go out for coffee? And I say, this sounds kind of harsh. I say, have you told them about Jesus yet? Well, no, because you're the pastor. And, you'll, and I said, no, I won't do that. This is your relationship. If you are a child of God, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then you have a story to tell. You are a witness. And let me tell you something else. No one except Jesus ever witnessed perfectly. I am absolutely convinced of that fact. No one except Jesus has ever done it perfectly. I remember so many times where I've had opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, and maybe they ask a question or they have a doubt, and I, I kind of stumble over the answer, and I, can't, I don't feel like I have the right thing to say at the moment. And I usually remember the right thing to say about two weeks later in the shower. That's where I seem to have these great visions is, is in the shower. It's like, oh, that's what I should have said. The, the point of it is, though, it's not our responsibility to convince people 
that the gospel is true. We've talked about this over and over again. It is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses. What does that mean? We speak to the truth of Jesus. And that applies to all of us. We are his witnesses, no matter how young, old, mature, male, female, educated, uneducated, we are called to be witnesses. The second ingredient or the second question having to do with witness that we see here in in Acts 8 is where? What's the location of witness? If we're all responsible to be witnesses, where are we supposed to witness? Where is our mission field? Are you ready for it? This is another really complicated concept. Wherever we are. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. That's it. Wherever they went. If, if I wait, <laughs> if I wait for conditions to be perfect before I go running, <laughs> why are you laughing? I don't understand. I don't know why you're laughing. I do run from time to time. It's very slow. But if I wait for conditions to be perfect, I'll never go. Because conditions will never be perfect. They will never, I'll always find some reason. My foot kind of hurts. I'm tired. It's a little bit rainy out. Oh, it's too hot. Oh, it's too cold. Oh, I just don't feel like it. There's always going to be a reason not to. If we wait for conditions to be perfect, to be witnesses for Christ, we never will. We never will. Wherever you are, wherever I am, that is our witness field. The third ingredient is the content of witness. What's the content of our witness? What goes into it? In my next sermon, two weeks from now, in Acts, I will spend more time explaining who the Samaritans were. That's where Philip is right now. He's in the region of Samaria. But suffice it to say now that the Samaritans also believed in the coming of a Messiah, one who would save them from oppression. So Philip works with what he's been given. To the Gentiles, the Messiah would not have had any meaning. But to the Samaritans and to the Jews, Messiah was a known and understood concept. We know today that Jesus is the Messiah. So if Philip was proclaiming the Messiah, he was proclaiming Jesus. His person, his identity, his death, his resurrection, his forgiveness, and his salvation. It's interesting that Luke can say all of that in one word. That Luke proclaimed the Messiah. That's the focus. That's the center. Jesus Christ and what he has done. And that's the content of our witness as well. So, what's the temptation? I think there's a very strong temptation for for most of us. Maybe not all of us, but most of us. There's a very strong temptation to talk about God, but not about his son. It's easier to talk about God. People tend to be more accepting. And part of that is because people can define that word 
however they want to define it. But Jesus, <laughs> Scripture calls Jesus a stumbling block. Scripture says that Jesus is the stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes men fall. He's the stone that the builders have rejected, which has become the capstone or the cornerstone. So Jesus can be very inconvenient. Jesus is exclusive. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, or a life. Jesus made claims of exclusivity that are very challenging to present in a pluralistic world in which we live. Both the Jews and the Samaritans were receptive to preaching about God. But when Jesus is preached as the Messiah, as the Son of God, then problems arise. So, brothers and sisters, if Jesus is not the content of our witness, we really have no witness. To carry on with the, uh, with the uh, recipe theme, it's like giving, baking chocolate chip cookies without the chocolate chips. Those are not chocolate chip cookies. They might be cookies, but they're not chocolate chip cookies. You can't leave out the main and most important ingredient. We must not avoid Christ as we share the gospel. Because he is the gospel. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I understand the discomfort of sharing Jesus, particularly in a hostile environment. And I'm not asking you or I'm not suggesting that you in your workplace stand up and start preaching in the middle of your office. There is a call as followers of Christ for us to be wise. But I think we probably go more to the side of not speaking than of speaking too much about Christ. He is the content of our witness. Jesus, his identity, his life, his death, his words, his, his resurrection, his salvation, his redemption. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.8, he's writing to Timothy, of course, and he's, he says, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. And when he's using the word there, Lord, he's speaking of Christ, of Jesus. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Jesus made another inconvenient statement about himself and our relationship to speaking about him in Mark 8. Mark 8, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. That's, that's not a very pleasant thing to consider, that God would be ashamed of me because I was ashamed of him. I was embarrassed to, to talk about Jesus when I had the opportunity to do so. The fourth ingredient, or the fourth principle, is the method of witness. How? How is this done? The content is Jesus, the Messiah, 
What's the method? Broadly speaking, from what we see here with Philip, the method for witness is word and action. Okay? Word and action. Philip proclaims the Messiah. He speaks the truth. He tells people about Jesus. At the same time, his words are backed up by practical actions, in this case by signs and wonders. And notice the nature of these signs. Evil spirits are being cast out and people are being healed. It's remarkable. And even with these signs, there are two aspects. Think about it. Ministry to the soul, ministry to the body. The signs that Philip performs are holistic in their reach. And I believe that this provides a template for us in our witness as well. Our ministry, our witness should be holistic as well. We must minister to the soul, the casting out of evil spirits in Philip's case, as well as to the body. Or another way to think of it is that we minister to the spiritual as well as to the material. Witness encompasses both. And that brings us to our final point. Priority in witness, because there is priority. While both of these factors are part of it, this text shows us there is a priority between the two. We need to be careful that we keep the main thing the main thing. That our priority and balance in witness is what God would desire. Because remember, signs are not an end in themselves. They point to something greater. The signs that Philip performs are not the end in and of themselves. Physical healing is beautiful and deep blessing. And I'm, I'm a product of physical healing. I remember I was in eighth grade and I'd been sick for five weeks. I don't know how many exams and tests had been done. Many, many, many. And the doctors did not know what was wrong with me. And my parents, for the first time, you've heard me tell you this before, for the first time ever at Calvary International Church, um, they followed James. <laughs> and they asked the elders to come to our home. The deacons came to our home. They anointed me with oil. They didn't know how to do that. It was the first time they'd ever done it. They were kind of figuring it out as they went. And they prayed for me. And the next day I was fine. And the day after that I was back in school. The Lord still heals. The Lord still does signs and wonders. But the signs are not an end in and of themselves. Physical healing is beautiful and deep blessing, but without the proclamation of the Messiah, there's no salvation. How did the crowds respond to Philip? I really want us to hear this. When they heard him and saw the signs he performed... Okay, so they saw the signs. This is important because to us, that's what's amazing and attractive and impressive. Wow, these signs. What did they do when they saw the signs? They paid close attention to what he said. This is the way it should be because the priority in witness is always the word of the gospel. The priority. Signs, service, meeting the physical needs of people should serve the proclaimed word. And 
I understand that most of us, as far as I know, God does not use most of us in here or hasn't yet to do many signs and wonders. That may be coming. I don't know. That may change. But for now, as far as I know, that's not a very common occurrence within our community, within our body. But I see a parallel of signs and wonders with ministry to the felt needs of people. Because in this case, that's what the signs and wonders were. They were ministry to the felt needs. They were healings. They were freeing from from the bondage to evil spirits. So those services, those ministries, they need to serve the proclaimed word. Ministry that stops short of proclaiming Jesus is not witness. I want you to hear that. Ministry that stops short, that avoids proclaiming Jesus is not witness. I'm not saying that meeting the felt needs of people is not valuable or meaningful. It is. And the mercy of God and the love of God can be communicated through us by helping to meet those needs. There are many places in Scripture that call God's people to help those that are in need. But, this is the point, we can't stop there. That cannot and must not be an end in and of itself. What I'm talking about is finding the proper balance and priority. There are two extremes that we need to avoid. And some of this has some historical rootedness. 50, 60, maybe 70 years ago, in Christian mission, there was an emphasis only on the preached word. I remember reading a book uh, written by an MK who grew up in Africa. And he told this incredible memory he had where his father took him along with him and they went out into the African bush to a very remote village. And the people in this village were in desperate need of water. And his father was able to provide some very rudimentary basic technology and he dug a well in that village. And it transformed the health and life of that village. And then this boy read the next prayer letter that his parents sent to their supporters and to their mission. And reading the boy, as the boy, that he was a man, as he's writing the story, he said, I was shocked that my dad didn't say anything in that letter about digging the well. Which to the boy had been this, this highlight, this incredible opportunity to meet the need of these people. And the father, when he asked the father, the father said, the people back home won't understand because they say that they're supporting us only to preach the gospel and they will not see digging this well as a valuable use of our time. That was a sad thing to read. But I want us to understand culturally a little bit where we have come from. So 50 or 60 years ago, that was much more the perspective on missions. But today, we have swung far to the opposite extreme where we 
canonize people who are ministering to the needs of people without bringing Jesus to them. And it's easier to do that. It really is. It's easier in our context to, because we, we get honored by society for feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and for working to, to destroy human trafficking and working with the homeless. Society, even secular society, honors us for that. And I want to, please hear me, amen to those who are doing that work. But if we are sons and daughters of God, we cannot and we must not stop there. It does, because in doing so, we do not address the deepest, greatest need of these people. What is the deepest need, the desperate need of their souls for repentance, forgiveness, and salvation? So meeting the physical needs, like the signs that Philip performs here, they should provide a platform for us to speak and proclaim the gospel. So maybe uh, an example could be that you know that there is a, a friend or an acquaintance of yours that is in desperate need of transportation. Desperate need. And so you give them a car. But you don't give them a car that has an engine. You give them a car that has the body, and the body is in beautiful shape. It's polished, it's shiny, it has all its windows, windshield wiper, there's no rust, the wheels are new, the tires are new, they're also clean and shiny, and it looks great, and there's no engine. Well, that, that car might provide a little bit of shelter, you know, if it's rainy, they could sit in there and not get wet. But it's not going to provide the transportation that they need. But then there's the other extreme, right? The other side of the coin in which proclamation is the only concern while the earthly needs of people are ignored. You've heard me tell the story several times of being on the highway and a car in, in front of us, it was late at night, ran off the road, ran into a concrete barrier and burst into flame. And then... The, the friends that I was with, we pulled over, ran back to the car. I stepped on something, twisted my ankle on the way and was useless for the rest of the time. But one of my friends is, is re crawling into this car and it's, it's, it's truly burning and he's pulling these people out, two people. The woman was trapped in there. He pulled them out at great personal risk. And there are two extremes. As I, as I think of that as an analogy of, of ministry and of speaking the gospel, there are two extremes, right? The one extreme is to, to go into the car and say, you look at the person and say, you know what, I don't have an opportunity to share the gospel here. Um, I'm not going to be able to, to talk to this person about Jesus, so there's really no point, you know? That's not ministry. And walk away. Right? That's one extreme. What's the other extreme? To look in and say, man, that person's really hot. It's really hot in there. I'm going to get him a drink of water. You know, you go get him a drink of water and you reach in and say, I can tell you're hot in there. Here, have a drink. As the story turned out, and I, this is not an exaggeration, my friend for whom I have incredible respect and awe was able to pull the woman who was trapped. He pulled her out, and this is not an exaggeration, about 10 seconds before the car just, it didn't explode, but it was just engulfed in flames. 
So do you understand those two extremes? The one extreme which says, no, it's only proclamation. And therefore, because we're not going to have a chance to proclaim the gospel, we're not going to help this person's felt need. And then the opposite extreme, which is, um, we're going to help the person's felt need and we're going to ignore their deepest, most profound need. The ministry of the gospel that we are presented in Acts, the ministry of the gospel that we're presented in all of the New Testament is a combination of both. It's a combination of both. And even going back into the Old Testament, that one, that, that verse we're so familiar with, religion that God our Father accepts as good and right is what? To care for the widows and the fatherless and to keep from being polluted by the world. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with, with your God? So the point, brothers and sisters, is that there is balance, but there is also priority. And as we consider witness, yes, we minister to the needs of people, but the highest, greatest need takes priority, and that is the need for people to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he loved the world so much that he submitted to the will of the Father and died on the cross in payment for the sins of the world. And because he was sinless, because he is God, he rose again victorious three days later and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father in heaven. And salvation is found in no other name because there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. The only name by which we must be saved is Jesus, the Son of God. Romans 10 contains a a kind of a description that Paul gives of this process of how people are going to hear about Jesus. How are they going to be saved unless they're told? Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's quoting there. And he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? Good question. And then he goes a step further back. And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And then he takes another step back. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And then one step further back. And how can they preach unless they are sent? That's really kind of like a little microcosm picture of missions, right? Of witness. Only people who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how can they call on that name if they don't believe on that name? How can they believe on that name if they've never been told about that name? How can they be told if no one's ever preached? And how can those people preach if they've never been sent? Doing good things is not enough. Our actions back up the words, but the words are primary. When the people saw what Philip did, They paid close attention to his words. Brothers and sisters, all of us, we are all witnesses. All of us. Kids, children, you are witnesses for Jesus. And our mission field is wherever we are. Home, work, school, Uber, street, sidewalk, office. That is our mission field. 
And we proclaim what? What's the content? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, his person, his work, his redemption, his salvation. And as his ambassadors, we minister to the body and to the soul, to the spiritual and to the material, with priority given to the word of God and the proclamation of his gospel. For it is by calling on the name of the Lord that people are saved. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our many failures, our many failings. We know that if we're honest, for many of us, we, we're still at the point of trying to, to find the courage to begin to, to speak more boldly. And Lord, we know that there are many reasons not to. There's resistance, there's fear, there's embarrassment, there's mockery, there's uh, an insecurity that we won't know what to say or how to say it, or that a fear that somehow we would fail you because we wouldn't speak well enough or eloquently enough or fully enough about you. But in this, Lord, we acknowledge once again that your spirit empowers witness and that you have placed your spirit in the soul, in the heart of each one who belongs to you. May we give space, Lord, to the spirit that you by your spirit would encourage and challenge us to speak, to take the initiative, to see and to seize opportunities that you give us for witness because we are your witnesses. And you have called us that, Jesus. So would you also give us the faithfulness to be faithful witnesses? In Jesus' name.